0: The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Today's History of Literature podcast is brought to you by The Smart Awesome Show, the show that celebrates smart people doing awesome things. In our next episode, we're joined by a food scientist who tells us all about the world of food safety. Never wonder why we can just walk into a grocery store and eat to our heart's content without dying? Or what it's like to invent new machines that test food for pernicious bacteria? Find out on The Smart Awesome Show, available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. That's right. That's our old friend, the Icelandic Shantuz Bjork. She's an army of me. If you complain once more, you'll meet an army of me. We're talking about Emily Dickinson today, the bard of Amherst, the queen of American poetry, the tucked away gem. I don't want to try too many nicknames here, because one of the things we're going to talk about is how her reputation has been seen throughout the generations. There are different ways to see her. I'll tell you what I think is the best way, but there have been others. I think some of them have gotten her wrong. But in any case, I don't think anyone doubts that she was a genius. But what do we mean by that term? John Lennon was asked if he considered himself a genius, and his answer was, well, if there is such a thing, then I am one. (laughs) It's hard to dispute. Actually, the whole quote is fascinating. It will help us help set up what we're going to talk about today let's let let me read the whole thing this is from the interview with jan winner in 1970 but actually before we get to that let's read an email first oh there's someone knocking at the door
1: hello i'm oliver twist oh oliver more gruel, please sir (laughs) that's all i'm asking for and guess who's been doling out the gruel here at the workhouse? Who's that, Oliver? Why, it's that insufferable drudge, Mr. Uh, Jack Wilson. Yes,
0: we know, we uh, know.
1: I guess he ain't a bad sort. When he's not jawing uh, my ear off about some chap named Dickens. Yes. I couldn't care you less said about me all this old before, Oliver. Fellow, but I would like We've some heard gruel. you. Won't you please throw a few shillings at Mr. Wilson so he can spare another spoonful of slop for me and the other lads? We'll consider ourselves grateful.
0: Ah, oh, Oliver, I think this might be the last time we're going to hear from you, Oliver, just in time for the holidays. We're <laughs> I think we're going to lock up that little lad. You ever notice that Oliver doesn't just arrive? He has the, the poor house in the background. <laughs> it's like Pigpen walking around with his old, his own cloud of dust. Oliver knocks on the door here, and when it opens, you can hear the children. It's like the studio door turns into a portal to a a London cafeteria. It's incredible. Also incredible is the brand new History of Literature shop, which you can find at historyofliterature.com slash shop. There you can buy tote bags, mugs, and virtual coffees for me, Jack Wilson. That's basically a donation. It's another way to put it. If you would like to support the show as a Patreon, you can head on over to patreon.com slash literature. So there are three options for you this holiday season. You can buy stuff. You can give a one-time donation, which is the virtual coffee, or sign up to be a Patreon, which is an ongoing donation for as little as $1 a month, payable with your credit card or PayPal account. We just fixed the virtual coffee, by the way. It was broken, but now it's ready for action. And I would be very grateful for your support. Happy holidays, everyone. But where were we? An email, then John Lennon, then Emily Dickinson. That's today on the History of Literature. <music> just wanted to reach out to let you know I really enjoy your podcast and its epicurean approach to literature. As a graduate student in literature, I often find myself applying this podcast as a healing balm during my commute. It helps remind me why I'm doing what I'm doing, that these are, at the end of the day, still delicacies I'm gorging myself on. So far, my favorite episodes were the one on bad poetry and the one on overrated books. I wonder what that says about me. Well, well, emailer, I think it says you have some fellow travelers out there. Those are two very popular episodes. Also, the one on Madame Bovary. I should probably put together a top 10 list or something. I think we're around the two-year anniversary mark at some point this month. If my producer were competent, he might remind me of that. And there, that's, that's him objecting. An incompetent form of objection, let the record show. He can't even get that right. Anyway, our emailer recommends a few things for upcoming episodes, which were excellent suggestions and went right on the list. Then he concluded, Anyway, thanks again for all the great work you do. Keep them coming. Cheers, Joshua. Well... Thank you, Joshua. I love to hear from listeners, and I appreciate your taking the time to send me the email. I'm so pleased to hear that you find literature to be akin to delicacies. That's true. These are nourishing and sustaining, but they're also treats. Bonbons for the soul. And I'm glad these podcast episodes help remind you of that. So, Let's get to John Lennon so we can start talking about Emily Dickinson and also my kids and Bjork. It all makes sense. I think we'll have to see how this all goes and comes together. Now, I may have talked about this quote before because I'm fascinated by the idea of genius and it's rare that a genius talks about what it's like to be a genius. We want to get into Emily Dickinson's head a little bit because there's a mystery to her that we want to get to the bottom of she's not like you and me, or maybe she is, or maybe we don't know. She wrote some wild and unusual and visionary poetry. She had a particular kind of writing that I think is special. But In any case, might help to hear what John Lennon said when he was asked about whether he was a genius. Yes, he said, if there is such a thing as one, I am one. And then Jan Wenner asked, when did you first realize it? And Lenin gave this incredible answer. When I was about 12, I used to think I must be a genius, but nobody's noticed. Then he laughed. He said, either I'm a genius or I'm mad. Which is it? No, I said, I can't be mad because nobody's put me away. Therefore, I'm a genius. Genius is a form of madness, and we're all that way. But I used to be a bit coy about it, like me guitar playing. If there's a thing such as genius, which is just what? What the F is it? I am one. And if there isn't, I don't care. Because I used to think when I was a kid writing my poetry and doing me paintings, I didn't become something when the Beatles made it or you heard about me. I've been like this all my life. Genius is pain, too. It's just pain. Just pain. The interview goes on, but I think that's good. That's enough. It's worth your time. If you want to seek it out, you can find it online. There's so much there. We're all mad. He says, how many artists have felt this? The creative output is something like madness, maybe. Let's start talking about Emily Dickinson so we can clear away some myths and talk about her poetry and her as a literary figure. Emily Dickinson was born in December of 1830 in Amherst, Massachusetts, where she lived for almost all of her life. She was born into a distinguished family. Her grandfather founded Amherst College, and her father was one of its leaders and was also elected to the state legislature. It was a sort of family where Ralph Waldo Emerson turned up and stayed when he was on one of his lecture tours, though it seems that Emily stayed next door during that visit never meeting the man, even though she admired his poetry greatly. She received a good early education, not just good for girls, but an outstanding education, really a top-notch education, though she left school as a teenager. Why she left is a bit of a mystery. Some say she was too shy and sensitive. Others say her father pulled her out for some reason. Both could be true, or neither. We don't know. She was close to her siblings, and she had some close friendships, including with her sister-in-law, Susan Gilbert, who lived next door. She had some meaningful correspondences. Her love life, if it's correct to call it that, has been the source of endless fascination and speculation. I'm not going to get into that here. I'd like to think she experienced love to the point of happiness in whatever form that took. I don't know exactly what that would be for Emily, though my guess is it would not be conventional, and it would be fruitless for us to try to imagine it as anything else. She died of kidney disease at the age of 55. Apart from a trip to Philadelphia that she took in her 20s, she rarely left the walking-distance circumference of her house in Amherst. She never married, though she seems to have been proposed to at least once. She also never joined a church. Even though her parents and siblings and friends did, she said in a letter, I am one of the lingering bad ones. Upon her death, it was discovered that she had written hundreds of poems, written, revised, sometimes rewritten, and stitched them into little booklets. Those 1,800 poems written in her startling and original poetic style, ranging across subjects that she knew about or that intrigued her, such as nature, religion, war, the self, love, medicine, law, science and technology, domestic life, death, commerce, fashion, birds, bugs, poetry, and the arts. These 1,800 poems might be the greatest creative output by anyone ever in America, male or female, poet or novelist or artist or composer. There's no one like Emily Dickinson. The woman who barely left her house Now has a worldwide reach. She belongs on every shelf, in every library, in every country in the world. During her lifetime, she published very little, a handful of poems, which were edited to the point where everything startling and original was bled out of them. But she knew she was a poet. How do we know that? We know from her actions and her letters. Is that like John Lennon knowing he was a genius? Maybe. And what about Bjork, our Icelandic avatar? How does she fit in? Hang on, listeners. We're getting to all of that. We just need to hang on for the ride. Hey, grown-ups. The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the cat in the hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, The Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus, in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Dickinson was hardly published during her lifetime. She took care to preserve her poems. It was not a secret that she was writing. She sent two hundred and fifty poems to her sister in law, who sometimes commented on them, which led Emily to make revisions, at least once that we know about. And she sent about a hundred of them to the editor of the Atlantic Monthly, Thomas Wentworth Higginson. Higginson had written an article encouraging young people to write, and something about that seems to have set something off in Emily. She wrote him a letter describing her understanding of poetry. She said If I read a book and it makes my whole body so cold no fire can warm me, I know that is poetry. If I feel physically as if the top of my head were taken off, I know that is poetry. These are the only way I know it. Is there any other way? End quote. She also sent him her own poems. It seems clear that she knew what she was up to. She knew this poetry was pouring out of her, and it was very good. The article by Higginson, written years after her death, describing the correspondence he had with Emily Dickinson, this arrived out of the blue, this letter from this mysterious person living in Amherst. It's kind of amazing. His article reminds me of Ford Maddox Ford, meaning D.H. Lawrence over the transom, so to speak. When genius comes knocking on the door and the editor is there and in a position to recognize it, it's wonderful for literature and for the world. Here's Higginson. This is from his letter where he wrote uh, years after the death of Emily Dickinson. He wrote about the experience of encountering her in this way, reading his reading her poetry. It goes like this, quote, Few events in American literary history have been more curious than the sudden rise of Emily Dickinson into a posthumous fame, only more accentuated by the utter recluse character of her life, and by her aversion to even a literary publicity. The lines which form a prelude to the published volume of her poems are the only ones that have come to light, indicating even a temporary desire to come in contact with the great world of readers. She seems to have had no reference in all the rest to anything but her own thought and a few friends. But for her only sister, it is very doubtful if her poems would ever have been printed at all. And when published, they were launched quietly and without any expectation of a wide audience. Yet the outcome of it is that six editions of the volume have been sold within six months. A suddenness of success almost without a parallel in American literature. One result of this glare of publicity has been a constant and earnest demand by her readers for further information in regard to her, and I have decided with much reluctance to give some extracts from her early correspondence, with one whom she always persisted in regarding, with very little ground for it, as a literary counselor and confidant." It seems to be the opinion of those who have examined her accessible correspondence most widely that no other letters bring us quite so intimately near to the peculiar quality and aroma of her nature, and it has been urged upon me very strongly that her readers have the right to know something more of this gifted and most interesting woman. On April 16th, 1862, I took from the post office in Worcester, Massachusetts, where I was then living, the following letter Mr. Higginson, are you too deeply occupied to say if my verse is alive? The mind is so near itself it cannot see distinctly, and I have none to ask. Should you think it breathed, and had you the leisure to tell me, I should feel quick gratitude. If I make the mistake that you dared to tell me would give me sincerer honor toward you. I enclose my name, asking you, if you please, sir, to tell me what is true. That you will not betray me, it is needless to ask, since honor is its own pawn. Then it goes back to Higginson's voice. This letter was postmarked Amherst and it was in a handwriting so peculiar that it seemed as if the writer might have taken her first lessons by studying the famous fossil bird tracks in the museum of that college town. Yet it was not in the slightest degree illiterate, but cultivated, quaint, and wholly unique. Of punctuation there was little. She used chiefly dashes, And it has been thought better in printing these letters, as with her poems, to give them the benefit in this respect of the ordinary usages, and so with her habit as to capitalization, as the printers call it, in which she followed the old English and present German method of thus distinguishing every noun substantive. But the most curious thing about the letter was the total absence of a signature. It proved, however, that she had written her name on a card and put it under the shelter of a smaller envelope enclosed in the larger. And even this name was written, as if the shy writer wished to recede as far as possible from view in pencil, not in ink. The name was Emily Dickinson. Enclosed with the letter were four poems, two of which have been already printed, safe in their alabaster chambers, and I'll Tell You How the Sun Rose. At that point, Higginson quotes a few of the poems and then he concludes, the impression of a wholly new and original poetic genius was as distinct on my mind at the first reading of these four poems as it is now, after thirty years of further knowledge, and with it came the problem never yet solved. What place ought to be assigned in literature to what is so remarkable yet so elusive of criticism? The bee himself did not evade the schoolboy more than she evaded me and even at this day I still stand somewhat bewildered, like the boy. Circumstances, however, soon brought me in contact with an uncle of Emily Dickinson, a gentleman not now living, a prominent city citizen of Worcester, a man of integrity and character, who shared her abruptness and impulsiveness, but certainly not her poetic temperament, from which he was indeed singularly remote. He could tell but little of her, she being evidently an enigma to him, as to me, it is hard to tell what answer was made by me under these circumstances to this letter. It is probable that the adviser sought to gain time a little and find out with what strange creature he was dealing. I remember to have ventured on some criticism, which she afterwards called surgery, and on some questions, part of which she evaded, as will be seen, with a naive skill such as the most experienced and worldly coquette might envy. Her second letter, received April twenty sixth, 1862, was as follows. Mr. Higginson, your kindness claimed earlier gratitude, but I was ill and write today from my pillow. Thank you for the surgery. It was not so painful as I supposed. I bring you others as you ask, though they might not differ. While my thought is undressed, I can make the distinction, but when I put them in the gown, they look alike and numb. You asked how old I was, I made no verse, but one or two until this winter, sir. I had a terror since September, I could tell to none, and so I sing, as the boy does by the burying ground, because I am afraid. You inquire my books, for poets I have Keats and Mr. and Mrs. Browning, for prose Mr. Ruskin, Sir Thomas Brown, and the Revelations. I went to school, but in your manner of the phrase, had no education. I'm just going to pause here. This is just remarkable. Here's Higginson. He's, <laughs> he's getting this letter with these amazing poems from this woman nobody's ever heard of. He has no idea who she is. And he's writing her. <laughs> he's trying to revise her poems, which he kind of bungles, by the way, in my opinion. He cleans up the capitalization. He changes the dashes. To formal punctuation. He doesn't know. Or is this person? Does she have any schooling? What's wrong with her? What's what's going on here? Then he meets her uncle, <laughs> and the uncle is uh, seems to have seems to be a little bit strange too, but also have nothing to do with poetry. The uncle seems to be as confounded by Emily Dickinson as Higginson. And so Higginson writes a letter to Emily Dickinson asking questions like, How old are you? Have you ever gone to school? What books do you what books do you read? Where did you come from? That's his question. How did you become you? He's just so astonished by this person and these poems. The way her mind is jumping around, the things she's chosen to put on the page in this handwriting of hers. It's like bird tracks, he thinks. (laughs) I think it would have been fun to have dinner with Mr. Higginson. He seems like a decent guy. (laughs) Amazed by Emily Dickinson. She has this way, whether it's in her poetry or her letters, everything is so strange. And the strangeness comes so quickly. It's piled on top of each other, one after one that you almost forget how strange it is you forget what you're dealing with here <laughs> it just kind of passes right by all of a sudden you asked how old i was she doesn't say she could have she could have given her age or the year she was born instead she says i made no verse but one or two until this winter sir well what does that mean that she wasn't born until she started writing poetry she just came into being at that point. Or is she saying, why are you asking my age? Do you think I'm, I'm a little girl or an old woman? Does it matter? I'll tell you what you need to know. I just started writing poetry. How about that, editor? And then her next thing is, I had a terror since September. I could tell to know, what is that? I sing as the boy does by the burying ground because I am afraid. Wow! And then her books, she's got Keats, Mister and Missus Browning. That's good. Mister Ruskin, for Thomas Brown, and the Revelations. Who is who is this person? Combining these influences, she had some school. Then she says. I went to school, but in your manner of the phrase, had no education. What does that mean? What does that mean? I went to school, but in your manner of the phrase, had no education. When a little girl, she continues, when a little girl, I had a friend who taught me immortality. But venturing too near himself, he never returned. Soon after, my tutor died, and for several years, my lexicon was my only companion. Then I found one more, but he was not contented I be his scholar. So he left the land. <laughs> <laughs> who writes like this? You ask of my companions. Okay. Ask someone who their companions are. What do they tell you? Oh, I have a friend. I have, I have some good friends from high school. That's a good answer, right? I have some good friends from high school and I made some other friends in college and now I live in the same city as a couple of them. I made some new friends. I'm friendly with some coworkers. That's an answer, right? That's how we talk to one another. Here's Emily Dickinson. You ask of my companions hills, sir, and the sundown, and a dog large as myself that my father bought me. They are better than beings because they know but do not tell, and the noise in the pool at noon excels my piano. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> who wouldn't want, if you're an editor of poetry, would you not read something like this and think this mind is, it's sparking in all these different directions. It's like a, it's like a, a mind full of firecrackers. I just toss a match into that brain and all, of <laughs> I just wait, sit back and listen. The letter goes on. I have a brother and sister. My mother does not care for thought and father too busy with his briefs to notice what we do. He buys me many books, but begs me not to read them because he fears they juggle the mind. (laughs) We're getting such a picture of such an unusual and curious but lively family. He buys me many books, but begs me not to read them. (laughs) She says, they are religious. She's talking about her family still. They are religious, except me, and address an eclipse every morning whom they call their father. Father is capitalized there. She means God. She's calling God an eclipse. How interesting is that? But I fear my story fatigues you. I would like to learn. Could you tell me how to grow? Or is it unconveyed, like melody or witchcraft? <laughs> ah. <laughs> I'm not sure I can. I have a lot more I want to talk about. I'm not sure I can get past just these letters. Could you tell me how to grow? Mr. Higginson, or is it unconveyed like melody or witchcraft? What would you do with that if you were Mr. Higginson? Um, I, (laughs) I don't think I have anything to teach you. I don't think I know how to teach you. Maybe we should just find some melodies or some witchcraft to pass along unconveyed. She writes, you speak of Mr. Whitman. I never read his book, but was told that it was disgraceful. I read Miss Prescott's Circumstance, but it followed me in the dark, so I avoided her. Two editors of journals came to my father's house this winter and asked me for my mind, and when I asked them why, they said I was penurious, and they would use it for the world. I could not weigh myself myself my size felt small to me <laughs> i read your chapters in the atlantic and experienced honor for you i was sure you would not reject a confiding question is this sir what you asked me to tell you your friend e dickinson ah <laughs> oh. <laughs> so wonderful We don't have a lot of the letters she received. We have more of the ones she sent. So our knowledge of her communications is fairly one-sided. But let's talk about what we have here. (laughs) Emily, who wants to know whether her verse is alive. That's the first sentence in the first letter to Higginson. Reminds me of some other artists and writers. It's a common theme, but it always makes me smile. Picasso said that it wasn't until he saw his works hanging in the Prado next to Goya's and Velasquez's that he thought, it's true, they fit, I really do belong. It was an open question, apparently, for him until he actually saw them in the museum. Then he felt proud. Something like Dickinson writing these poems, she must have known that she was unusual, had an unusual mind, and that she was working hard on these poems. But she's still looking for a little affirmation, maybe from Higginson. She had interesting meter, interesting slant rhymes, interesting form. She also famously probably used dashes more than any other poet. Higginson really, really took something away from Emily Dickinson, when he straightened out the punctuation, made it more conventional. The dashes. What do we get from the dashes? Here's what I get. The quickness of her mind, a little breathy, sometimes a pause, sometimes a fleeting thought. It's like she's trying to catch these thoughts. The thoughts are flitting about like butterflies. She's snatching them. She's just getting what she can on the page. I like the dashes. They take me into her mind somehow. I'm glad we no longer conventionalize them the way that Higginson did. There actually are apparently some grammar books that use dashes, including grammar books that we know Dickinson would have seen. Those books recommended their use, and that would seem to somehow support Dickinson's use of them. But she knew the other forms of punctuation, the period, the semicolon, the comma. She could have used those. She chose the dash each and almost every time. Another fascinating element of her poetry is the way she mirrors the abstract and the ruthlessly concrete, the practical, the day-to-day. She can write about day-to-day events or everyday items, but she spins them into a kind of ethereal world, a landscape of metaphor that she then floats through. She reminds us that the I in the poem is not her, it's a character, but this is... The impression we get, regardless, that it's Emily Dickinson or it's her speaker or her narrator. doesn't matter. There's this wild, spun metaphor. And then there's this character encountering the imagery, the new thought, the changed world that the imagery creates. Here's a famous one. My life had stood a loaded gun in corners till a day the owner passed, identified, and carried me away. And now we roam in sovereign woods, and now we hunt the doe, and every time I speak for him the mountains straight reply. And do I smile, such cordial light upon the valley glow? It is as a Vesuvian face Had let its pleasure through. And when at night, our good day done, I guard my master's head, Tis better than the eider duck's deep pillow To have shared. To foe of his I'm deadly foe, None stir the second time, On whom I lay a yellow eye Or an emphatic thumb. Though I than he may longer live, He longer must than I. For I have but the power to kill without the power to die. It's fantastic. All dashes, by the way. You can't see this through the podcast, but if you seek out the poem, My Life Has Stood a Loaded Gun, you'll see that it's, there is no punctuation. It's just dashes. Now, much of this poem is sort of pretending to be a gun, The poem began as, I wonder what it's like to be a gun carried through fields. It would be sort of a description of an object. right? This is what happens when you're a gun. You get carried around by a hunter. You roam in sovereign woods and you hunt the doe. Every time you speak, meaning you fire the gun, every time you as a gun speak, the mountains straight reply, they echo. But there's more than just this. There's more than just an interesting, here are the metaphors of what it's like to be a gun. It's opening up questions. It's opening up, my life had stood. It begins, the gun is her life. My life had stood a loaded gun. Why? Why is her life like a loaded gun? Because she has repressed her true feelings, her anger, Anger at what? At women's place in society? These are all things that have been theorized. At being surrounded by the religious people around her, at being a poet, almost a secret poet, her life has the power to kill. What is that? For I have but the power to kill without the power to die. Why would her life not have the power to die. These are all mysteries. We can put answers to them. We can answer these questions. We can come up with our own theories, our own uh, interesting ways of reading her poems. But I think the beauty is in the questions being presented, wondering what Emily thought. There are so many Dickinson poems like this. I taste a liquor never brewed safe in their alabaster chambers. She hardly ever gave her poems titles. About 10 of them have titles out of 1800. But the first lines are so powerful that they work almost like titles. That's how they're usually listed. In anthologies, I'll give you some. Success is counted sweetest. Second line, by those who ne'er succeed. Doesn't that make you want to read the whole thing? safe in their alabaster chambers. I taste a liquor never brewed. Or this one, Wild Nights, Wild Nights, (laughs) Wild Nights, dash, Wild Nights, exclamation mark. She used exclamation marks a lot, too. Sometimes a little too often for my taste. Not here, though. Wild Nights, dash, Wild Nights, exclamation mark. That's the first line of the poem. It's like a little haiku in and of itself. My favorite haiku: "Naked on a naked horse in pouring rain." Exclamation mark! Wild nights, wild nights. I love it. Just love Emily Dickinson. Is that clear? Here are some other first lines. I'm nobody. Who are you? I'm nobody, exclamation mark. Who are you, question mark. i felt a funeral in my brain. Or, hope is the thing with feathers. Here's one, I'll read the whole poem. A bird came down the walk. A bird came down the walk, he did not know I saw. He bit an angleworm in halves and ate the fellow raw. And then he drank a dew from a convenient grass And then hopped sideways to the wall To let a beetle pass. He glanced with rapid eyes That hurried all abroad. They looked like frightened beads, I thought. He stirred his velvet head Like one in danger. Cautious, I offered him a crumb. And he unrolled his feathers And rode him softer home. Then oars divide the ocean, too silver for a seam, or butterflies off banks of noon, leap plashless as they swim. It's beautiful. Rode him softer home. Isn't that a beautiful way to describe the feathers of a bird Unrolled his feathers and rode him softer home. Also Leap, splashless as they swim. Not splashless, Splashless, That S there doesn't belong. They're not making an S sound when they hit the water. Butterflies, they leap, splashless as they swim. Here's another first line. Because I could not stop for death, he kindly stopped for me. <laughs> Try reading that without being chilled and wanting to go on and read what comes next. Because I could not stop for death, he kindly stopped for me. <laughs> Don't you want to read the rest of the poem? I have to wait until the end of the episode then go find it. How about this one? Tell all the truth, but tell it slant. These are powerful poems, powerful lines. You go find them. You won't be disappointed. Read a few at a time and see where they take you. Now, she mentioned something else in the second letter to Higginson that Higginson quoted the terror. I felt the terror. What is the terror? What could it be? We don't know. It's never been explained definitively. It's been, there have been a lot of guesses, a number of different things that it might be. It is disorienting to read about this terror, especially in her penmanship. Higginson picked up on this. Her penmanship is really something you should find and take a look at. It's elegant and stately, but it is as if viewed through a cloud. It seems to get the feeling that it was words were floating above the page, and then they just dotted themselves down once in a while. As if they were being stamped, or as if the the letters the, I mean the letters of the alphabet, it's as if they were butterflies. it just I mean Higginson called them fossil bird tracks, maybe gentle birds. I think of butterflies though, the tracks butterflies might leave a plashless pen what was the terror? We were talking about the terror? What was the terror? Was it connected to the Civil War, which had just started? She said that it she said that the terror she felt was in September eighteen sixty one could have been connected with the Civil War, which had started a few months before that. Was it a premonition of death, her own her own death, or her absorbing and contemplating the civil war and the death and and devastation that was bringing? Did she feel her illness coming on? Was it something in her brain? Some form of anxiety, of depression, some kind of mood swing? What was it? We do not know. It was a terror. Emily's terror a secret, part of the myth, something for us to see and to think about permeating through her poetry and our understanding of it. But it's not ours to really know. It's not ours to define, to put in a box. It's kind of like her poems. Maybe there is no right answer, no single right answer. Maybe it's, there are some likely, some less likely some interpretations that are just kind of there, hovering, possible. I mentioned before that that there were myths about Emily Dickinson that I'd like to wash away. One of them is the sort of view of Emily that she's poor Emily. She's a victim of her own debilitating shyness. She had her nose in her books and on the landscape outside her window, but she could never bring herself to feel true emotion because she she was a shut-in. She couldn't get out in the world. I don't think that's right. First of all, we do see a great depth of feeling in her letters, as well as in her poems, of course, and there are enough suggestions of her interpersonal relationships to think we have no more reason to think of her as a shut-in as we have to think of her as a selective lover using... Lover, in whatever sense of the term you like. We have testimonials of people who knew her. In this case, Higginson sent letters to his wife about Emily Dickinson, and we have those, and they give an amazing picture of his visits to her. So we see her, she kind of comes to life, but she's still something of a mystery. Higginson describes the house, and then he says, A step like a pattering child's in entry and in glided a little plain woman with two smooth bands of reddish hair and a face a little like bell doves, not plainer, with no good feature, in a very plain and exquisitely clean white peak and a blue net worsted shawl. She came to me with two day lilies, which she put in a sort of childlike way into my hand and said, these are my introduction, in a soft, frightened, breathless, childlike voice, and added under her breath, forgive me if I am frightened, I never see strangers, and hardly know what I say. But she talked soon and thenceforward continuously, and deferentially, sometimes stopping to ask me to talk instead of her, but readily recommencing manner between Angie Tilton and Mr. Alcott, but thoroughly ingenuous and simple, which they are not, and saying many things which you would have thought foolish and I wise, and some things you would have liked. I add a few over the page. And then he quotes here some things that Emily Dickinson has said, said during their conversation. She says, truth is such a rare thing, it is delightful to tell it she says, "I find ecstasy in living; the mere sense of living is joy enough." She says, "Could you tell me what home is?" <laughs> he is just writing these down, just making lists of them because he's probably trying to figure them out. Women talk; men are silent. That is why I dread women. I like this one. My father only reads on Sunday. He reads lonely and rigorous books. <laughs> She says, how do most people live without any thoughts? There are many people in the world. You must have noticed them in the street. How do they live? How do they get strength to put on their clothes in the morning? She had had some trouble with her vision. And she says, when I lost the use of my eyes, it was a comfort to think there were so few real books that I could easily find someone to read me all of them. He says, I never had a mother. I suppose a mother is one to whom you hurry when you are troubled. I never knew how to tell time by the clock till I was 15. My father thought he had taught me, but I did not understand, and I was afraid to say I did not, and afraid to ask anyone else, lest he should know. This is a person, it seems to me, I think it seemed to Higgins, Higginson, that this is a person who thinking in poetry. (laughs) Her mind is jumping around. She's grabbing things. She's grabbing thoughts. The thoughts are, are floating in. She's grabbing them and trying to pin them down. Just like she's pinning down words to put on the page in between those dashes. Now I want to talk about a couple of geniuses in my own life. My two children. They're not geniuses, of course, but like any good parent, I think that they are, and I especially thought that when they were toddlers, because children at that age are marvelous and wonderful, and they learn and grow so quickly. It seems like they're all headed for adult lives as Einsteins. (laughs) When you see a kid, really watch them up close, the way they absorb language, the way they put things together, the connections they make. It's amazing. But what I saw with my boys, I have two of them, what I saw with them was that they had different kinds of intelligences. And it started from day one that they were different. And it's carried through until today. The older one loved books. I read to him all the time. At six months, he would sit on my lap and watch the pages as I turned them. He would do it as long as I had the patience for, hours. Soon enough, I realized he didn't need books with pictures. He was happy to just listen to the words. So I graduated to books that took a little longer. It had more words. Magic Treehouse books, A Wrinkle in Time, The Great Brain, books that interested me a little more. Then I just just gave up reading children's books. I just read Patrick O'Brien. Didn't matter. He would sit and listen. And then I would kind of Showed him how letters worked. He seemed to grasp that. And then one day, I was reading something to him and I just stopped. And I said, where am I on the page? And he pointed to the word. So, I knew he must be recognizing the words as I as I was reading them. So I wrote out a list of words Pig and dog and cat and words like that. And he just said them. He was two years old. And it was, he's still like that methodical, quiet, thoughtful, reserved, observing. He can also be creative and animated. I don't mean he's a computer or a robot or something like that, but he's linear. He could just happy to follow the words along the page, listening to them as they unfolded in time and watching them scroll across the page in his mind. He's linear and he's logical and he's patient. His younger brother is the opposite. He would never read even a single book cover to cover. I don't think I've read, to this day, I don't think I've managed to read a book cover to cover, certainly not when he was sitting in my lap, He jumped around, he'd grab the book and turn six pages, then turn back ten pages, then turn forward five pages, jumping around to whatever interested him, and it interested him not to move linearly, but to dip in and out and jump around and take everything all out of order. It was as as if he was resisting the order, resisting the linearity, of the printed word he needed to find what interested him and sometimes what interested him was to cut things up and shuffle them around to hear things out of order or to make me read it that way he'd rather pretend to read a book like harry potter than to tackle something he could actually read like dr seuss he'd sit with harry potter and just flip the pages like he was reading, jumping around, with audiobooks of Harry Potter playing in the background. <laughs> it was very, very different from his older brother, the experiences that we had had with him. And he still loves graphic novels, and he has his own way of reading them. It's not methodical. It's like he's applying his own energy to the process of reading. He, just, he can't even just accept it for what it is he's now. He can also be logical and thoughtful and all of that. But I can't help thinking that he's just different from his brother. It's not better or worse. It's just very different. And it's fascinating to me to see them up close and to see the way their mind works and to make me wonder how my own mind works. Logical, creative, Everyone is different. Everyone has their own way of responding to the world. It's fascinating. And in the grand scheme of things, let's say I'm a two or a three on the interesting mind scale and my boys, I'll say, are a four or a five. Emily Dickinson is a 100. And Bjork, (laughs) there is no scale for Bjork. We're lucky to see these people, to spend time with them when Emily Dickinson presses the flowers into Higginson's hand and starts telling him things, or when she puts her thoughts on the page, sends them off, and or stitches them up for her sister to find after her death and share them with the world. When Bjork arrives, part woman, part talent, part vision, part Space alien, we can admire them and we understand more about ourselves. With all those people on the red carpet wearing this year's fat high fashion, it's great to have a swan once in a while who swims her way in and says, Here I am. <laughs> it all makes sense to her. Now, after reading those Emily Dickinson letters and hearing about her conversations with Higginson, It reminded me of something I read recently, an interview that Bjork conducted with herself. Really, I don't know why (laughs) we're spending so much time on Bjork, except she's another genius often misunderstood, and she's out there. She's wonderful. Let me give you the lyrics to her song, Bachelorette, and think about the lyric form of Emily Dickinson's poetry. I think there are some affinities here. Here's Bachelorette. I'm a fountain of blood in the shape of a girl. You're the bird on the brim, hypnotized by the whirl. Drink me, make me feel real, wet your beak in the stream. Game we're playing is life, love is a two-way dream. Leave me now, return tonight, tide will show you the way. If you forget my name, you will go astray, like a killer whale trapped in a bay. I'm a path of cinders burning under your feet. You're the one who walks me. I'm your one-way street. I'm a whisper in water, secret for you to hear. You are the one who grows distant when I beckon you near. I'm a tree that grows hearts, one for each that you take. You're the intruder hand. I'm the branch that you break. Somewhere. Emily is smiling, I think. Here's the way to read Emily Dickinson. Just go check out some of the first lines in an anthology or a selection. I wouldn't necessarily start with the collected works of Emily Dickinson. Find someone that has selected them, someone you trust, an anthology you trust, a best of type of compilation, and then just dip in. Jump around, be like a butterfly looking for a home on the page. And then if you enjoy the poems, once you get through those, if you want more, then by all means, seek out the collected poems of Emily Dickinson. They're 1,800. They're all interesting. They're there for you. They're there for you to experience. I think it, Nabokov, I think it was Nabokov who said he had never failed to get on a train where it didn't, let's see, Getting on a train never had never failed to lift his spirits. That's how Emily Dickinson's poetry is like for me. It's never failed me. It's never failed to lift my spirits when I've given it the chance. So dip in, roam around, don't be intimidated, and don't ignore them. Here's Bjork the great innovator, the human, musical, divining rod, interviewing herself. She says, good morning. So I'm all sleepy but happy here, just having sent the last files to Mastering, album ready. And then got asked to write questions to myself. Hmm, what would I want to be asked? Trixie. I kind of do have a soft spot for some of them cliché questions, like what would you tell your teenage self? Perhaps I could reverse it? Like what if I could ask a future self stuff? Okay. How about I envision a place in nature with all the warm headspace possible for music making and love in the air? Will that happen to me? I mean, I kind of already have this with my cabin in Iceland, but like a full-time thing, I have craved it for so long. Also, I'd probably ask about health and happiness of my loved ones question mark. And if there is something I could assist with, dot, 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 question mark. But mostly, I'd probably want to know if I remain brave with music. Let me interject here. Just say, that's so similar to Emily Dickinson asking if her verse is alive. I'd want to know, do I remain brave with music? Bjork goes on and says, "Before I fell asleep last night, I tried to think of some like Normcore magaziney questions, but I didn't feel too inspired. But maybe I should answer them. Perhaps they are just a warm-up into some ice breakage later, like any lush daily rituals, like the bridge or the tunnel, which reminds me of the bridge in No Theater." and the slowest walk ever of the actors from the dressing room on stage in full view of the audience. Kind of more epic or important than the show. (laughs) Whose mind works like this? (laughs) Just Bjork's. (laughs) Anyways, she writes, so first proper question, here we go. (laughs) Let me just pause here and talk about how wonderful Bjork is. So, she's... Asking questions of herself. She's been asked to interview herself, so she's kind of talking her way through that. She's thinking of things that she would ask herself. She thinks of some conventional questions. That's what she's thinking. She's thinking of some magazine-y questions, the kind of questions that magazine reporters would ask her. right? And she writes them all down so she can answer them the next day. So now she's saying, here's the first proper question. So what do you think it is, listener? What do you think the first proper magazine question would be? Uh, Tell me about your new album. How about that? Or what have you been doing since your new album? Or where do you get your ideas? Or uh, tell us how this your latest work differs from your earlier work. Aren't those the normal questions? Here's Bjork's here's the first proper question that she comes up when she, that she comes up with when she's interviewing herself. So, first proper question, here we go. What is your relationship with flutes? <laughs> and then she says, "Well, I wanted to learn the oboe as a child and my mother couldn't afford it, so I learned the flute." and had a little bit, had this strange immature feeling that it was my second choice for the six or eight years I studied it, depending on how you count, parentheses, recorders included or not. My main interest in music school was always music theory, which I think overall was unusual and nerdish, especially from a girl. Everyone was focusing more on their instrument. I do remember putting my foot down around 10 or 11 years old, though, and refusing to play music by old dead German guys. I couldn't relate to them. And being an Icelandic girl in the late 20th century, there wasn't much in common. So they got me this young flute teacher who introduced me to recent Finnish flute music, which was so gorgeous and kind of folk and very connected to nature, but also had a bit of atonal avant-garde in it. It kind of liquided back and forth between ancient folk melodies and the sound effect abstract. What's not to love? Then I started in punk bands and played flute in a couple of them. For example, Anna, with Kukul and Glora. I think it's on YouTube. I think also, looking back, it really trained my lungs well with breathing and stamina. So when I started singing, which was also my second choice, WTF, because I wanted to be a drummer, I probably had a very naive, clumsy voice, but I had killer lungs, even though I say so myself. But it was crazy for this album now coming back to it after all these years later. Like, looking at a not-so-cool part of my childhood. Flutes were always a bit naff. And looking at it so much later through a time glass and seeing another thread and linking it together and bringing it forth to now. I feel also doing my last album, which was me letting it all go into the most darkness of loss and grief that I've done so far, Suddenly, all sounds that were light and fluffy sounded so appealing. And then here's her second normal magazine proper question for herself. Do you allow space to think abstractly? <laughs> Is there any magazine interviewer out there who would have asked that? But here's Bjork. Coming up. Well, let me just come up with some normal magazine questions. First, proper question What is your relationship with flutes? Second, proper question Do you allow space to think abstractly? And she answers, I probably could some more? (laughs) Question mark. But I have to say, sometimes in the heat of solving riddles, like when I was finishing mixing this album, for example, I got the most abstract and fast, fluid moments. But sometimes, especially in the writing process, I have to allow myself to truly free float to get to that new fertile place and not just repeat myself. So in short, it is abstract when and where it is abstract. Can't plan it? (laughs) Third conventional question she comes up with for herself. How do you avoid routine crystallizing your days into stagnant, firm form? She answers, Ha 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 ha, it's an ongoing riddle. I do get it, though, half of the time right. But just juggling children and everything else, sometimes especially out of consideration for others, you have to go a little rigid with them dates. But I try not to plan too much ahead, or I get claustrophobic. As a musician, there has to be a lot of space for me to improvise. Otherwise, I'd never write anything. She says, the next question What is your favorite ritual? She says, I think the mornings are the most precious ones. They can be most magic, but also the hardest ones if you get them wrong. To remain fluid, but gently open to changes or different people and include everyone, the evenings are easier because then you have all the ingredients of the day and it's easier to guess what will go down well or what element is lacking. (laughs) Who thinks like this? Mornings are the most precious. They can be the most magic, but they're the hardest ones. If you get them wrong, you have to be fluid but gently open to changes or different people and include everyone. The evenings are easier. Because then you have all the ingredients of the day and it's easier to guess what will go down well or what element is lacking. She's living life in a different way. Her mind is taking her places, is seeing things in a way that is just unusual. That's what we get from Bjork. The privilege of viewing her mind in action. It's a creative mind responding to the world, making connections, inspiring us, showing us new things or old things in a completely new way. That's Bjork or John Lennon or our boys, if you're a parent, watching young children. It's what draws us to Emily Dickinson and her breathless, timeless poetry. Those are some thoughts, some real thoughts in those poems. They skitter across the surface like watery bugs riding the wind and powered by their wings. They plunge deep, too. They are lively. And yes, Emily, they are alive. there we go. That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. My thanks to Emily Dickinson and all the other geniuses out there for letting us spend some time with them and for calling forth all our powers. My thanks to all my Patreons, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, who joined the fun at patreon.com slash literature. And my thanks to you, the listeners, for spending a little time with me this November slash December. I hope you're enjoying this time of year and that the holiday season is one you've been enjoying so far and are looking forward to. Maybe our lives don't have to be loaded guns. Maybe they could be bright, colorful flowers, at least for the next few weeks. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.